Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Today's an exciting day for us because we're finishing out this study, but it's also an exciting day because of what this study means for the season of the year that we're in. We're in Advent right now. This is the end of the year. We're coming up on Christmas, and we're um, thinking about um, Christmas Day and presents and the first arrival of Jesus, but it's also a time for us to be um, anticipating and building our celebration and our preparation for the second coming of Jesus. And that is essentially what Isaiah 65 and 66 is all about. So we're going to read these two chapters through the lens of Advent, like we've been talking about the last three weeks. These chapters are at the very tail end of what we've been discussing during this period, the last 10 chapters of Isaiah. They cover this period of waiting right before Jesus arrives the first time. So following, coming back from the exile from Babylon, there's this period of waiting, and then Jesus arrives, and then there's this period of waiting again, and then he arrives a second time. And so the 10 chapters, they cover all this period, the period of waiting and then Jesus' arrival, we can read about here in the Bible. But the second period of waiting and his second arrival, that's the period we're in right now. We're living in this period of waiting. So what Isaiah has to say for, to us is very important. So what we're covering today is the very tail end of that waiting. In 65 and 66, you've got just, just the very last season, the last days, the, the, the final season, just, just before his arrival, and then his arrival. But these two chapters, Isaiah does it in a very creative way. We kind of talked about this just a little bit last week, but there's a poetic uh, tool that can be used, uh, that is used often by the prophets, called recapitulation. Um, and it's essentially the retelling in a poetic way to reinforce a point. So essentially what it is, is I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you the same thing again from a different angle, where I'm going to tell you a thing, and then I'm going to pause, and then I'm going to tell you the same thing again, because repetition is how we learn. So it's a poetic tool. It's a, um, it's a tool that the prophets leveraged a lot, and that is what we will find in Isaiah 65 and 66. So the best way to think about recapitulation is to think about an ocean wave. So if you've ever been at the beach and you're standing on the shore and you're watching the waves kind of come in and crash, they come in and they crash on the shore and then the tide pulls it back out and then it comes in and crashes again. That's a great way to think about recapitulation. What the prophets are doing is they're telling of how this wave is building and building and building and then it's coming in and it's crashing on the shore. But that's not the end. I really want you to understand what he's doing. So we're going to pull back and we're going to build momentum and it's going to come in and it's going to crash again. So that's the rhythm of these last two chapters. All on the same page? Sweet. Let's get to it. Isaiah 65. Let's start in verse 1. <clears throat> this is the Lord speaking. And it is the picture of the world just before his arrival. What is happening in the world just before Jesus returns for his second advent. 65.1, it says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. 
some translations say, or that did not call upon me. I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face, continually sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh, and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Now, he's not saying that eating pork is bad. What he's saying is that there are customs that were normal to God's people, and the world has thrown all those out the window. The Lord has said, this is good, and we as a people have said, that's not good. This other thing is good. And God has said, no, I said that thing is bad. No, no, it's not bad anymore, it's good. The period of time just before the Lord arrives, you've got people hiding out in tombs, spending the night in secret places, which is a poetic way of saying hiding their sins. They're provoking God to His face. They're sacrificing in gardens, meaning they're giving themselves to these beautiful little idols that they've created in these beautiful little gardens. But none of it is what the Lord has asked. And He's standing here saying, here I am. And we're standing there saying, I don't have time for you because I'm tending this beautiful thing that I built. Verse 5, who say, speaking of the people, keep to yourself, do not come near me for I am too holy for you. He's talking about the religious divide within the church. He's talking about people who like to flaunt their religious power and prestige as a way to put other people in their place. These, all these things that the Lord has just said, they're a smoke in my nostril, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. Both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because... They made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. So the picture of the world just before his arrival is that God is inviting and the earth is rebelling. The Creator is standing looking over His creation and He's saying, come to me. Please accept my Son and His sacrifice of covering your sins. Come to Me. Come to My holy mountain and learn My ways. And the world is busy. God's saying, come. And the world's saying, I can't. I'm too busy. What are you busy with? I'm busy building new gods. I'm busy advancing technology. I'm busy creating new realities. I'm busy creating new identities for myself. I'm busy hiding my sin. What does the Lord say about the condition of the earth just before He arrives? What does He have to say about this? And what should we think about in the context of what He says? Well, He says, I will not keep silent to this. I see what you're doing, and I won't let it go on forever. I know what you're hiding, and I know how you're lying. I know what you think you have hidden and nobody knows about. I know about it, and it will not go unchecked. I will call you on it. 
You will have to give an account for all the things that you think you have hidden. There is nothing that any human being that has ever done that will not be uncovered by the Lord. When we look across the world and when we read the news and when we see new things happening, we're thinking, oh, can you believe this? Can you see this new thing? I can't even believe. And the Lord's like, no, I, I can believe. I saw this a long time ago. I told Isaiah it was coming 3,000 years ago. I knew this was coming. There's not one thing that's news to you that isn't already news to him. So what does that mean to us as God's people if he knew and he has stored up his wrath for a time of vengeance. It means that if you have been the recipient of abuse and that abuser escaped punishment, he hasn't escaped eternal punishment. If you grew up and someone took advantage of you and abused you when you were younger or when you were older, and they got away with it. God is letting you know they didn't get away with it. He will pour into their lap the wrath that is coming their way for what was done to you. It means that corrupt leaders who are fueled by demonic darkness and think they're fooling society, will have their day before a holy God. It means that unjust laws that were made by people with agendas will have to answer before a holy God for the things that they brought upon society. And it means that religious hypocrites who like to posture and act like they have prestige and clout that other people don't. All the time they hide behind a mask will one day have that mask ripped off by a holy God. And it will not be pleasant. Go down to verse 8. We're still in that period just before his arrival, and the prophet shifts focus He says, thus says the Lord, verse 8, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, don't destroy it, for there's a blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. Interesting. Because the prophet's given us this picture of a cluster of grapes, and in this cluster, some of them are sour, and some of them are just bursting ripe. It reminds us of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Lord, why are you letting the wicked grow up among the righteous? Because there'll be a day when there will be a sifting. For now, let them grow together because there is a chance that the wicked will repent. So I let them grow together. And this is the imagery that we're seeing. In the last days, just before his arrival, there's a contrast of two groups of people. Verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountain. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture of flocks. Now, Sharon is the land between the Mediterranean Sea and Jerusalem. It's a very fertile place. 
And the Lord is saying that in this period just before His return, that those fruitful grapes, those chosen servants will become fruitful just like the fruitful pastures of Sharon. And in the valley of Acre, a place for herds to lie down. Now that valley is where Achan was killed for hiding some of the treasures from Jericho. That area will be considered a place of rest for my people who have sought me. Okay, so now we've got one group of people in this period before he returns, and it seems to be a faithful people who the Lord is using even lands that were used for corruption. They will be redeemed for his purposes. And just before his return, you're seeing fruitfulness among his people. But, in verse 11, but you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. So we've got the faithful, the new wine, the church, they're at peace, they're fruitful, they're singing, we'll find out in a minute. And now we've got the unfaithful. What are the unfaithful doing before the Lord's return? They're setting a table of fortune. They're trying to make themselves rich. They're busy making drinks of new destiny. Verse 12, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. And when I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes, and you chose what I did not delight in. And therefore the Lord says, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart, and you shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord God will put you to death, but His servants He will call by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Just pause there for a second. Because now, just before his arrival, we've got two groups of people, the faithful and the unfaithful. The faithful are busy being fruitful and singing praises. The unfaithful are busy trying to set their own destiny and get rich. But in the middle of that, we also see the beginning of persecution between those two. In verse 15, we see that the unfaithful are trying to label the faithful with a false name, a curse. The world is trying to put a curse on His church. The world is trying to call His church by a different name, but it doesn't matter because the Lord has called His church by a name. And in the midst of this persecution, He feeds them, and they are fruitful. And in the midst of this turmoil between these two groups, we see the Lord caring for His people. And in that care, in that season of tribulation where you've got the faithful being faithful to Jesus and the unfaithful screaming out and crying out against God, we don't want any of your ways and we hate your people who represent your ways. In the middle of that, God is being faithful to his people. And some of those who cried out against God will see that faithfulness and they will say, I'm going to turn from my sin because I want him. Why is he doing this? Why is he allowing these two people to grow up together? Because 
It is His grace and His mercy. It is His way of saying, I'm going to put you, non-believer, in a cubicle next to a believer so that when you stand before me in judgment, you will have no excuse that you didn't know. This entire world is living next to the people of faith. And at the end, there will be no excuses. Do you see what he's doing here? He's putting his grace and his love on display in his people so that a dying world who's hungry and thirsty for more and is looking around saying, we should build a utopia so this world is better, catches a glimpse of what God is doing in his people and says, oh, that's the utopia. That's what he's doing. So I can continue to try and build my own thing to better this world, but it's not really addressing the issue of sin where I can turn to the offer that God Almighty has given this world and I can forsake the stuff and follow him. That's what he's doing in this final period before his return. And you see him doing it today. And then, in verse 17, there is a burst of joy because the Lord has returned and established a new thing. In the midst of this tribulation between these two groups, the Lord returns, verse 17, and says, Behold, which we know it's that prophetic word, stop what you're doing and look at this. Look at what God is about to do in the midst of this broken world. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. That's <laughs> good stuff. The former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. All right, now follow me here. I want you to listen to what's coming our way. It's not popping around on clouds, playing a harp as a chubby little baby angel for all eternity. It's not a disembodied spirit just floating around for the rest of, that's not what's coming our way. What's coming our way is a new heaven and a new earth. A resurrection is coming and we will be redeemed and brought back to life, just like Jesus was brought back to life, and we will live in a new heaven and a new earth in a very physical, tangible world that will look more like Eden than what we see today. This is what he's doing. He's bringing Eden back. He's redeeming the world to what it was before we messed it up. And what does that look like? In verse 20, it says, "'No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days.'" Or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And there's great debate about what this looks like, because it seems to allude that there will be death after his return. And there are lots of schools of camp, schools of thought on that. We've talked about millennial reign and how all that works. I think what he's implying here is the poetic sense that our understanding of death will be gone. 
I don't think he's literally saying that a young man will die at 100 years. I think he's poetically saying that our concept of young and old don't need it anymore. Your concept of, of life and death or having a plan for some retirement, all of that is unnecessary. That is all out the window. None of it is important. None of it is needed. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. Oh, okay, so we're living in houses now. You're going to plant vineyards and they're going to eat of their fruit. And they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. So there's no end to the joy of farming. Some of you are like, uh, that's not what I signed up for. What do you think the world did before iPhones came along? <laughs> Just think about it. Think about what your life would be if, you, if, your, if your schedule wasn't run by your boss. If the joy of the day was going out and getting your hands in the dirt that he created, and while you're doing it, just worship is just flowing through your heart and through your mind. And you don't got to worry about staying late at work to hit some deadline because your work is your backyard and it's the vineyard. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm here for it. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. Mm. He's going to answer before you even call. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Finally. Right? Finally. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. So at his, at his return, he creates this new heaven and new earth. It's probably not a new planet that we're going to. It's probably made new like we are made new when we come to saving faith. You are a new creation, but it is still you. It's just new. It's the first fruit of that resurrection that's coming. It's a complete transformation. It's you, but it's not you at all. This new heaven and new earth is mirrored in Revelation 21. We'll study it next year when we get into Revelation, but the idea is that John sees this vision of Jerusalem, this temple coming down out of heaven and plants itself right on top of where Jerusalem is on earth. And it's a physical place with physical dimensions. And Jesus rules and reigns from there. And it's the beginning of a whole new understanding and a whole new world. And everything is fruitful. And I think it's important for us to just sit here and tease this out for a second because I, I really, really believe that if we can catch the vision of what Isaiah and what John is trying to show us, it will start informing our evangelism to be a little different. Here's what I mean by that. I think that currently the church is really good at evangelizing and including the work of Christ and the cross and the resurrection. 
But I think that we most often, nine times out of ten, we stop right there. But that's not where the New Testament stops. He is redeeming for a reason. He is raising the dead for a reason. And that reason is because he's bringing a new heaven and a new earth where we will rule and reign with him for all eternity in our resurrected mortal bodies. Now, if you're talking to a non-believer who looks at the world and says, this place is a mess, what can we do to make this place better? That is just a small representation of what exists in all of mankind. When we look at the world, nobody wants it to be worse. Okay, some people want it to be worse. Most people want it to be better. Well, guess who else wants it to be better? The Lord. And he's got a plan for how he's going to accomplish it. And it doesn't look like uh, voting in the right people and establishing the right laws and changing the way that, you know, what kind of cars we drive, all of that stuff temporary changes. If you're old enough to remember back in the 80s when we were told, hey, um, all of your paper consumption, it's killing the planet. Stop using paper. You're killing the rainforests. You got to get on this new thing called plastic. (laughs) Right? So we all, okay, we'll get it. We're going to save the rainforests and we're going to get on plastic. Guess what? Now you're killing the sea turtles with all your plastic. So what are you going to do? You got to drink your drink out of a paper straw. And halfway through, it's going to deteriorate. So you need three of them just to get through your drink. Do you see where I'm going with this? The world's solutions, they only can go so far and they don't really solve anything. All they they do is just create more problems down the road. We've been doing that since the history of mankind. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They went and sewed fig leaves together. That's not fixing anything, but we think it is. To the world, non-believers right here, like, is there any way that this could all be better? Oh yeah, it could be better. And it could be better the way he said it's gonna be better. You follow the sun, and he returns, he makes it all different. He changes it, he makes it all new. And this is what it's looking like, so I think It's important for us to not just look at this and wonder and say, oh man, isn't it going to be glorious? I think we should start looking for ways to include this into the way we talk about salvation. What is He saving you from and what is He saving you to? He's setting you free from something and He's setting you free to something else. And this something else is pretty great, but most of us walk around with a very weak understanding of what that other thing is. What does eternity look like? Well, I don't know. No, you do know. It's in here. It's spelled out very clearly what's in here. So what we got to start doing is we got to start reading this and, and understanding what's in here because it should inform the way we talk about our God because our God is not this angry bully who's just trying to punish people. He's a God who's standing there saying, here I am. Come to me. Pursue me. And in return, I'm going to reward you with eternal life. And you're, you're, you can't even imagine how amazing the world's going to be when the lion lays down with the lamb. When this whole world lays down their weapons and they come to the mountain of God and say, teach us your ways because our ways are broken and they haven't produced anything. Now, 
The wave has crashed, and now it's going back out again. And the prophet is building in 66. Go to verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? What, what could you possibly do for me? How about I do something for you? You can't build something for me. The earth is my footstool. That's, that's how big we're talking. Verse 2, all these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What's the Lord looking for? In this period of time just before he arrives, he's looking for humble, broken spirits that tremble at his word. What should you spend your time with doing in this period before he arrives? Learning how to be humble and low in spirit and trembling at his word. And then he contrasts again these two groups of people. Verse 3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. Boy, that is weird, strong imagery, huh? What's he getting at? He's trying to contrast how foolish man is to take the things that God has given us and manipulate them in a way where we think we can get him to do what we want him, what we want him to do. I'm going to take this thing of sacrifices, this slaughtering of animals, and I'm going to use it to manipulate God to get what I want. He who presents a grain offering, no, he's like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense is like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights and their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, nobody answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. This vision is starting to build again in this period right before his return. And we see this contrast of the faithful people. We see this contrast of the unfaithful people. It continues in verse 5 through 14. When he's talking about what this period of waiting looks like in verse 5, he talks about more of the religious infighting during this tribulation in 7 through 13. It talks about how the faithful were birthed in a day. We're talking about the church and that they're going to be messengers of hope. In verse 14, it talks about how they're faithful and rejoicing and singing just before his return. And then in 15, the wave crashes again. Pick up in 66.15, it says, For behold, stop what you're doing and look. The Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his word with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, an abomination of mice, they shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. 
So those people who are trying to manipulate God with their religiosity, they're going to be destroyed along with the unbeliever. But verse 18, for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all the nations and tongues, and they shall come to see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. So when he returns, he's going to return with this invitation worldwide, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, to Lud, and draw the bow to Tubal, and Javan, and the coastlands far away. From the ends of the earth, when he arrives, nobody is going to miss it. All these four furthest corners of the world that have not heard his fame or seen his glory, they shall declare my glory among the nations. Verse 20, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain. Jerusalem, says the Lord. Hmm. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them from these four, excuse me, far corners of the world, when they arrive, some of them will be taken as priests and for Levites, says the Lord. That is highly offensive. You had to be born into the priesthood, but the Lord is saying what I'm doing in these end days, I'm calling the four corners of the earth to come and learn my ways. And some of these who have never been part of the family will now not just be part of the family, they will be ministers in this new eternity. For years, the nations have systematically removed God. They've erased Him and they've ignored Him, but they can't stop Him. The sky is going to split and everyone will know that Jesus is King. Last three verses, 22 through 24. This is following the wave crash. This is after His arrival, after His judgment. What comes next when the wave has crashed on the shore and the sand is soaking wet, and the beach is transformed by what the wave has done, what do we see in the world? Verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. That's a really important declaration. All flesh will worship. What about those who don't? They shall go down, verse 24, they shall go out and look down on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> the Lord returns and establishes His kingdom. And people from all corners of the world are coming to worship. And those who chose to rebel and reject hell. Jesus taught about this. Hell is a real place. 
It's an eternal place. And it's the eternal place where people go when they have rejected the invitation of a holy God saying, here I am. Just come to me. No, no, no. I don't want to. I want to do things my own way. There is repercussions for that. So, I'm guessing this is not how you anticipated a Christmas message or the end of Isaiah coming to a close. But I think that there's one thing that should poke at us. And besides the fact that um, you never really get what you expect, you probably showed up with, well, let's talk about joy today. Just a couple days before Christmas, let's get excited. No, we're not going to get excited. We're going to talk about what it's like in the new heaven, the new earth, to walk out and just survey the valley of dead bodies of people who said, I don't want you, Jesus. And I want us to, just before Christmas, spend a second thinking about how important it is to get one question right. What do you think about Jesus? Look, in this life, you can get a lot of things wrong. You can miss a lot of questions on a lot of tests and still be okay, but there is one thing that you cannot get wrong in this life, and that is what you think and what you do with a holy God who sent his son to die on your behalf. It has eternal consequences, and we are told that he is coming again to enact judgment and vengeance on the earth to those who have said, I don't want anything to do with you. I had a dream last night. I think it was a prophetic dream because I have a lot of dreams and I usually wake up and forget what they are. But this one just gripped me by the neck and it wouldn't let me go all morning. Now, I can't stand when people tell me their dreams because they start talking about stuff and they give me details. And I don't know what you, like three seconds in, I'm lost. I don't know what you're talking about. Because dreams are weird anyway, right? That's not my spiritual gift. I don't interpret dreams. But I'm going to tell you this one anyway because it really gripped me. I was sitting in a vacation home with my family and I was on the porch and just beyond the porch was a yard, a road, and an airport. And I was sitting there at a table talking with my dad out on the porch. And as he's speaking, I look just past him to the airport and this plane is coming in and just before it lands, it takes a complete nosedive and crashes. And it creates this enormous explosion. And I jump up out of my seat and my dad turns around and looks just in time to see another plane just drop out of the sky. And without warning, there are hundreds of planes falling out of the sky and debris just raining down in the yard and impaling into the grass. And I felt this sense of fear and I started running around, where's my family, where's my family? And I gathered my kids and we go back in this back room and we sit down and all of them are looking at me with this look on their face like, what do we do, Dad? What is happening? And in the dream I said, it started, kids. He's coming back. Now, I'm not telling you that that's going to happen, that planes are going to start falling out of the sky. 
Because that's not what gripped me when I woke up. Because I think prophetically the the planes are a symbol of something. I think that they're symbolic, at least to me, because the dream was to me. I think they're symbolic of how high we try to soar as humans with our advancements and with our technology. And that all it takes is for the Lord to say one word, and all of it ends. And there's not a single thing that you can say or do or plead to make it stop. There is a date on his calendar when he is coming back and when the Lord says, now, it's too late. There are no more second chances. There are no more, oh my gosh, I got it wrong. There is no more, I wasted my life. There is only right now and he's back. And the sky splits and everything that you lived for means nothing if it wasn't for him. I feel like the Lord gave me that dream as we're closing this because I think that it's important for us to live with this sense. We're an odd people, right? Because we live with this sense of just celebration. We're walking around singing all the time, worshiping Jesus because he's that good and we know he's coming back but equal part celebration, but also trembling at his word. Because we know what it means when he comes back. We know what it means when the trumpet blows and everything is done. We're excited about what's coming next, but we know what it means for our family. We know what it means for us. We know that everything that we've made our lives about up until that point means nothing. And it's terrifying. Because if we were honest with ourselves on this Christmas day, we are not preparing for his return. We are preparing for a pleasant life. We are ordering our steps to avoid as much pain as possible and to have as much fun and enjoyment as possible. I'm not knocking fun and enjoyment. If you know me, I like fun and enjoyment. But there is a sense of urgency that I don't want us to lose in this season of preparation. That at any moment, everything changes. Let that reality inform how you celebrate this week, how you talk to your loved ones, your neighbors, about the reality that Jesus is coming back, and how you choose to order your life as we step into a new year in 2022, because the because here's, here's the reality. If you look at your life like a house, there's a lot of clutter. A lot of clutter. A lot of closets just jam-packed. Don't open that. Things will fall out. And I think if we use the Bible to inform the way we're supposed to be living, 2022 starts the year of a big yard sale because we've got to get rid of some garbage you got to let go of some unforgiveness. you got to stop stockpiling that hurt that has given you an identity for most of your life. you got to stop walking around so angry at everything and everybody. There's no time for you to continue to be angry. Stop being angry. Because in one moment, now, and everything changes. So don't hold on to stuff that doesn't matter. 
and Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.